in the year AD 386, which is a long time ago, there was a professor of rhetoric in the city of Milan, a university teacher, and he sat weeping in a garden, uh, in his friend's garden, his friend Olypius, and he was contemplating the biggest decision of his entire life, which was whether or not to become a Christian. And the thing that was holding him back was his own carnal passions. He um, was quite a ladies' man. And he was weeping and tugging at the hair in his head and crawling up into a ball and grabbing his arms around his knees and hoping for some kind of strength. But he knew he didn't have strength in himself to come to Christ. And then from that garden he heard the sound of children as though singing in a house nearby. And he'd never heard the song, and he'd never heard it before or since. And maybe it wasn't even real children, he doesn't even know. But they, they sang this little chanty song, Tole Lege, Tole Lege, Tole Lege, which means take up and read. And he was sitting on a bench by his friend Alepius, and there was a scroll lying between the two men, and he picked up this scroll, and he unscrolled it, and he read these words, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He said, quote, no further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly at this sentence, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. The man's name was Aurelius Augustinus, whom we know as St. Augustine. And one of the most influential men, at least for the next thousand years, some would say probably the most influential theologian since Paul, even to date. Some people would say that. Any collection of the great books of the Western world includes Augustine's Confessions or the City of God or both. And the quotation he read was from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. 1,129 years after that, in 1515, there was another professor, a professor of sacred theology and an Augustinian monk who was teaching his students the book of Romans. And though he was teaching theology in a university, he was a tormented man in his heart, struggling with his own faith. And he wrote, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. This man's name is Martin Luther, and it is to him we owe the Protestant Reformation, of course, which broke the shackles of superstition and sophistry and human wisdom and tradition which had 
buried the gospel for hundreds and hundreds of years. 223 years later, in 1738, May 24th, a very discouraged missionary went, he says, very unwillingly to a religious meeting in a house in London. A few months before that, he had written in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? And at the meeting, someone was reading Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans, which came out of his teaching on Romans. And then this missionary wrote, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That man's name was John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and that event is often marked as the beginning of one of the greatest revivals in church history. So what is it about the book of Romans? Well, I'll tell you, it's the clearest, most carefully articulated explanation of the gospel in the whole Bible. William Tyndale, the man who translated the Bible into English in 1525 and who was burned at the stake for doing it, wrote in his printed Bible these little introductions to each book of the, the New Testament, and he says this of the book of Romans. For as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure euangelion, that's a Greek word that means gospel, that is to say glad tidings and that we call gospel, and also a light and a way in unto the whole scripture, I think it meet or appropriate that every Christian man not only know it by rote and without the book, but also exercise himself therein evermore continually, as with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too often or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is, and the more groundly it is searched, the more precious things are found in it so great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. One of the great, of greatest of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, who they called the golden mouth because he was such a great preacher, had the book of Romans read to him twice a week for his entire life. So Romans is a book to know. I have never taught through it. Uh, somehow it's always intimidated me. <laughs> I've studied it a lot. I've read it often. I've referred to it often, but I've never taught it all the way through it, it seemed above me somehow. It's like I didn't want to quite go there yet. And uh, like a treasure that would be damaged if you like handled it with human hands, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, I never felt quite worthy enough or quite ready enough to teach on it, um, to explore its depths in sermons. And I'm still not worthy to do that, but I do feel ready. Uh, and that's where we're going to be in the next few months in the book of Romans, going verse by verse through, uh, through it. So you would do well to read it ahead of time, get familiar with it, if you're not familiar with it. It is Paul at his absolute best because here he is systematic in a way that most New Testament letters are not. You know, most of the epistles of the New Testament are written to solve certain problems, like some guy comes to visit Paul, and he came from Corinth, and they say, you know what's going on at Corinth? This is going on, and this is going on. So he writes a letter and just kind of deals with the things that are going on. But Romans isn't like that. Romans is systematic from start to finish. It is a carefully developed reasoned argument and explanation of the greatest theme that the human mind can contemplate. 
So it's special, it's precious. And of course, Romans is extremely relevant for our time. And not only deals with controversial social issues, but most importantly, it goes to the heart of the most difficult theological issues. It is unabashedly God-centered in its approach to everything, which is a real challenge to the current climate of theology, which is man-centered, generally. Interesting, you have man-centered theology, because the word theology means the study of God, but so much of it is more about us than about him. But Romans is not about us. I mean, we're in it all the way through, but it's not man-centered. It's God-centered. It puts man in his proper place. So by the time you get through Romans, there's not much of being man-centered left. It puts you on your knees and then it puts you on your face, which are really the best positions when you're approaching infinite majesty and holiness. Political correctness just sort of fades when you look at this book, and trendy ideas fall away, and psychological schemes seem really irrelevant, because Romans addresses the real need of every human heart, which is this, how can I be right with God? That's the question it answers. That is man's most pressing issue, whether man knows it or not. In fact, the book of Romans responds to the person that would say, well, a lot of people don't feel that's their most pressing need. That's not a big issue to them. Well, the book of Romans actually tells you why it's not a most pressing issue to a lot of people, but why it actually is, whether they know it or not. It answers so much. Even though I've never taught through it, I would guess that when people come to me and ask me Bible questions or theology questions or doctrine questions, I probably turn to Romans far more than any other book to give the answers because it is so well laid out there. In fact, some have said that if you had Genesis and Matthew and Romans, you would have 90% of everything you need to know as a Christian. And where do they get that 90% figure? Probably out of thin air. <laughs> but the, the point of it is there's so much there that if you have Genesis and understand the beginnings, the origins of all these things, if you have Matthew and know the life of Christ and his teaching, and if you have the book of Romans, which is the explanation of all of that, you've got just about everything you need. So how can a man be right with God? That's the question. And in a way, in a way Paul's answering the question from the Old Testament. The entire book of Romans is built around three words from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, one of those little tiny books near the end of the Old Testament, a minor prophet, as they call them. Three Hebrew words, which become six Greek words, which is however many words your translation puts it in in English, I don't know. But you can see the quotation in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, and here's the quotation, But the righteous man shall live by faith. Those are the three words in Hebrew. That's the way it translates out. But the righteous shall live by faith. The New King James Version says the just shall live by faith. Just, righteous are the same idea. Um, a righteous man is a man that is right with God. A just man is a man whose life, whose existence is justified in God's presence. Accepted. It's the same idea. The one who is just before God or right before God is the same thing. It's talking about a relationship with God that is free and clear, that has no obstacles standing between us and Him. It's the question every sinner should ask. 
How can I be right with God? Anybody here not a sinner? No, don't raise your hand. I don't want to see. But that was the question that plagued Martin Luther, the great reformer. How can a sinner like me be right with an infinitely holy God? And he was a priest and a theologian and a teacher. But he had been taught, as the entire medieval world was, that a man can never know if he's right with God. The gospel had been so buried under layers of tradition that Luther had no hope. The cross of Christ was valuable only if you could collect enough grace during your lifetime so that at the end you had enough accumulated to keep you out of hell. And you collected grace by confession and self-denial and sacraments and penance and mortification. And grace was gathered to oneself in the hope that you would gather enough. But Luther had a terrible problem. He could not pretend. He was too honest with himself. In his heart, he knew that his sin far outweighed his merit. And he came to see God as a distant and foreboding judge and executioner. And he was like swimming against a current of judgment that he could never overcome. Because every day put him farther behind. Until he taught Romans. And found, in fact it was his mentor that had him teach Romans because Johann von Stoppitz, who was running the Augustinian order in which Luther taught, said, you know what? You need the Bible <laughs> to find your answers. So he had him teach the Bible. And Luther found the just shall live by faith. Live! That was a word that grabbed him. He hadn't found life at all. Only death and despair. But when he discovered the gospel... He was, to use the Apostle Peter's words, born again to a living hope. He found out how a sinner can be right with God. And it wasn't by human effort, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now some people who like sacraments and penance and self-mortification and all of that stuff, they say, Luther's cheating. Luther cheated! He couldn't handle the rigorous life of the righteous, so he found an easy way out. It's all by faith, huh? That's pretty easy. That's the accusation. You know they said the exact same thing about the Apostle Paul, exactly the same thing, 1,500 years before? That, by the way, is what Romans chapter 6 is all about, which we'll be getting to eventually. The just shall live by faith wasn't any easier for proud religionists to accept in the first century as it was in the 16th century or in the 21st century. Seems too easy. Is it really easy? Look to the cross of Christ in your mind. That wasn't easy. That's what it's about. Paul didn't cheat. Luther didn't cheat. What he did was discover what God had done. And they didn't seek an easy way. One of the reasons I read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 earlier was that you could see what a hard life an apostle had. An apostle that preached the gospel of grace and justification by faith alone. 
Luther's life was constantly in danger and many of the reformers were burned at the stake like Tyndale was. It wasn't easy. But God is more glorified in his saving work than he ever would be by our self-righteous efforts. Cheating in religion is cheapening God. That's what cheating is. It's denying God's nature and denying God's attributes and taking him down, minimizing his word. Paul doesn't do that. And Luther doesn't do that. Here's cheating. It's an attitude like this. It's a typical American attitude towards religion. Well, you know, God's a nice fella, right? You know, isn't he? I mean, he can't be too uptight about a few, like, you know, indiscretions, right? I mean, everybody sins, everybody, you know? And I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else, but I'm not worse than anybody else either. And I think I'll be right with God because I'm a regular sort of guy, and, you know, he's supposed to be merciful, right, anyway? And a few sins can't really be that big a deal. Now, that's cheating. It's cheating because it diminishes God, which is idolatrous and blasphemous. Because God, in reality, is infinite in his perfections, infinite in his hatred of sin and evil, infinite in his holiness and purity. And even the slightest hint that God winks at evil or thinks it is no big deal is in itself a gross sin of blasphemy. Luther never went there, and Paul never went there. The just shall live by faith does not diminish God's holiness or suggest any compromise with sin at all. Indeed, Paul says in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All sin calls down the wrath of God. All sin does that. Not the wink of God. It's okay, buddy. But God's wrath abides over the sinner. That is why believers are expected to hate evil and not to delight in it. So the gospel of justification by faith does not diminish God. It simply reveals what God has done in love to redeem people that are worthy only of divine wrath. And that's a totally different picture than saying, oh, you know, we just have to believe and it's okay. A person that says that doesn't understand what they're talking about. So these are the things we'll be discussing in great detail in the weeks ahead how the gospel lays out and it answers all the big theological questions, or most of them. So in the remaining few minutes, then, I just want to get, uh, set the scene a little bit. Why Romans? Uh, what occasions the writing? What's going on? Why is Paul doing this? You know, Rome had a very interesting church in the mid-50s, not the 1950s, the 50s. No 19s or 18s or anything on the front of it, just the 50s. Way back. 2,000 years ago. Rome, of course, was the capital of this enormous... It's really hard to imagine how vast the Roman Empire was. I mean, it was... Especially for the ancient world when travel was so difficult. Huge empire. It was a city that was pagan to the very core, an uh, extremely immoral place, a, a dirty metropolis, but a place of great power for the powerful. And plainly, historically... Within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, there was already a thriving church in Rome, the capital. 
But what's interesting about it is that the evidence is quite strong that the church there was not apostolically founded. In other words, unlike Ephesus and unlike Corinth and unlike Antioch, no apostle had gone there and planted a church and evangelized. The Roman church was unvisited, if you will, by apostolic authority, which is really unique. No apostle had been there yet. So the church was started by Christians moving there or living there after they got the gospel somewhere else. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the twelve apostles, they went out and they preached. It gives a list of the people that heard the gospel in their own language. Remember, there's the miracle of tongues or languages. And they heard that in their own language. And in Acts 2.10 it says some of the people there were visitors from Rome. So if some people heard the gospel on that very day, just 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and if they believed on that day, and they went home after the Passover was done to Rome, that would have been, been the beginning right there of a little nucleus of believing people. Others were converted by Christians in Rome that had gone there, or people that moved there, such as Paul's friends Aquila and Priscilla, who's one of these really interesting couples in the Bible you would just love to know much more about, because they're mentioned like five or six times, but briefly, every time, and without a lot of detail. But Aquila and Priscilla are a really interesting pair. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul met them in Corinth, which is in Greece, uh, on the Peloponnesus there, and they were tent makers, by trade, like he was, they made tents. That's what Paul. That's how Paul earned a living. They had been expelled from Rome in A.D. 49. In A.D. 49, Claudius the emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome. This is historically attested. And it talks about it in Acts chapter 18. And Suetonius, who is a Roman historian, uh, very antithetical to Christianity, he made a comment in one of his writings about Claudius's reign. He said that Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome because of some problems over this guy, Crestus. And if you read the book of Acts, you know that almost everywhere Christianity went, there were riots in the Jewish community because people were being won to Jesus Christ and some of the Jews didn't like that and there would there'd be a lot of movement to get the government to persecute. Well, anyway, Claudius, I guess, got so fed up with that, the Christus problem, the Christ problem, that he just kicked everybody out of Rome that had anything to do with it. So all the Jews were expelled from Rome for a time, A.D. 49. And uh, Aquila and Priscilla were part of the kicking out. So uh, uh, apparently they were Jewish. We don't, weren't told that, but I assume that's true. Um, so when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, which is an earlier book than Romans, they were living in Ephesus. He met them in Corinth. When Paul went to Ephesus, they went there too. And they're living in Ephesus and hosting church that are meeting in their home. So Paul writes um, in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. In fact, let me just read that for you. These people hosted churches in their home is what they did. He says, The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. So um, here in Corinth, He's sending greetings from them. The church is meeting in their home. Later, they go to Ephesus themselves and are working there. But then, by AD 56, they're back in Rome and hosting a church in their home there as well. In Romans chapter 16, which is all greetings, practically, he says, greet... Now, Paul's writing... The book of Romans was written from Corinth, Asia Minor, Greece, to Rome. And they're now in Rome. 
He met them in Corinth, then they went to Ephesus, and now they're in Rome. So these guys are leaders. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. So that's um, Romans 16, 3 and 4. So Paul's back in Corinth when he wrote Romans, and he's writing because he's planning a visit there. He wants to go. Now this would probably be the first time an apostle has ever visited Rome. Now this isn't some vacation for Paul. Hey, I think I'll go hang out at the baths in Rome. Um, people did not vacation to Rome. People in Rome vacationed elsewhere. Nobody went to Rome for a vacation. But um, Paul, is, Paul is very purposeful, obviously, in everything that he does. You can just pick that up from his personality. I think uh, the primary purpose is to use Rome as a support base to go further west. And if you look at Romans 15, verse 20, you can see his explanation for this. I'm not going to read this whole section, but he says in verse 20, Thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. That's sort of Paul's rule. He doesn't want to go where somebody else has already done the work. He's those kind of guys that wants to go to a new place where nobody's done anything before. So if Peter had preached the gospel in this town, he wasn't going to go there. If Andrew had preached the gospel over here, he wasn't going to go there. If John had preached the gospel over here, he wasn't going to go there. He wants new territory. And by this time, Greece is uh, pretty well set. And Macedonia and those areas, they're, they're doing well. So he's ready to start moving again. Verse 21, But as it is written, They who have no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So here's the mission plan. I'm going to go to Spain. Spain is... Spain was one of the earliest Roman colonies. Obviously, you're still going west. But nobody had gone there yet with the gospel. So he says, I'm going to Spain, but I'd like to stop in Italy on the way. So he's in Greece. He's actually going to go visit Jerusalem, and then he's going to come back, touch base with everybody he's been, go on to Italy, and then go out, off to Spain. That's what he's planning to do. So he's going to go west, and he's going to build a relationship with the church in Rome to help him along the way, which is just logical to do that. So he wants a support base in Rome that would be very useful, and of course Paul could obviously benefit the Roman church by his own presence since he was an apostle. You know, apostles had special gifts. They weren't like you and me in a lot of ways. I mean, they were just men, but they were granted gifts by Christ to authenticate their authority, because apostles had authority in the church over everyone on earth. Even prophets were subject to the apostles, the New Testament tells us. So they were, if you had a question, they answered the question. If they said it, that was it. They were, they were the authority. And Christ granted them powers to authenticate their authority. The gifts were unquestioned proofs of God's favor on their words, so they were miraculous in nature. They were things that other people couldn't do. So Paul could bring the Roman Christians who had never met an apostle the experience of an apostolic presence, which would include what he describes in verse 19 of chapter 15. He talks about power, the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit. That's the kind of thing he was going to bring them. Not only that, 
Apostles could confer this ability to work miracles to other people. They could lay their hands on people and grant them the same powers. So if an apostle could walk down the street and see a leper and heal him, or walk down the street and see a person that was lame and heal him, or open the eyes of the blind, they could grant that power to other people. But other people couldn't pass that power on from there. It always ended from the apostolic hands, if you will. Why? Because they were the authority. And Christ wanted the authority to be, always be pointing back to them. So Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, he says, I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So he's talking about the joy of Christian fellowship, mutual encouragement and support, but also that he can impart to them spiritual gifts that they don't have. It's really interesting when you read in, uh, we'll be getting there a long way from now, but in Romans chapter 12, there's a list of gifts of the church that, that Christ gives the church, and it's totally different than the gift list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. The 1 Corinthians 12 gift list is rather miraculous. Remember that? Tongues and healings and all these incredible powers that people had in the church at Corinth. When you read the list in Romans, it's helping people and administration and uh, things like that. There aren't miraculous gifts in that list. That's because no apostle had ever been there, had never imparted to them miraculous gifts. So they were a strong, functional, doctrinally correct church that didn't have miraculous things going on all the time. That was, a, that was an apostolic blessing. So Paul's going to come there and give them that too. That will encourage and strengthen uh, them. They will encourage and strengthen him with their faith and their fidelity to the gospel. And Paul's mission will continue as he works his way west towards Spain. So off the letter goes, containing this wonderful, systematic exposition of the gospel that Paul preached to strengthen them in the truth and get them excited about moving it on to new lands. And here's just a little interesting side note. The letter was carried to Rome by Phoebe. Romans chapter 16. Phoebe was a deaconess from Sincrea, a town near Corinth, and he commends her in the opening words of chapter 16. Of all these greetings, he starts with her because she's the one traveling to there, and he wants them to receive her. So he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea. Sincrea is a town near Corinth that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. That word translated servant in the New American Standard Bible is just the word deacon, uh, deaconess, so she's a, she's a deaconess apparently. Obviously a, a very trustworthy and able gal. And uh, I don't know, just think about it for a minute. What a privilege. Can you imagine like being the person that carried book of Romans to Rome? I mean, that would be kind of a neat job, right? Uh, awesome thing. What a privilege uh, to be entrusted to her, to carry the greatest of the New Testament epistles. God's word to its final destination in the greatest city of the greatest empire of that time. Awesome. So it's kind of neat to think of. You just kind of picture Carol Johansson there carrying the book of Romans to, to, to Rome and being responsible for that. Being a deaconess is a cool deal. Um, so, in two weeks, we're going to start to unscroll what Phoebe carried to Rome, uh, bit by bit, as we work our way through the greatest of all 
New Testament letters. And we will unfold and unpack these great truths that are there. I say two weeks because next week we're having uh, Jim Rickard come. But So come ready then to drink deep from a fresh and clean fountain of truth. It's going to be rich, I promise you, uh, the time there. Uh, even if I'm lousy at preaching it, it's worth it just to hear it read. Okay, so come. It'll be more than worth your while. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful letter answering the very, very great need of our heart. How can I be right with God? No pretending here. No pretending that things are just okay because we want them to be okay. But actually explaining what you did through Jesus to make us right with you. That we could be accepted by you. Not only accepted, but actually, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, made children, adopted into your family, children of God. What a concept. Thank you for that, and we ask you to bless our study and make it bear the kind of fruit it did for St. Augustine, for Martin Luther, for John Wesley. Who knows who's sitting in this room and what effect we can have on our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.